Our Father and our God, we bow before you again with thankful hearts that we have the privilege to enter in your throne room, enter into this time of worship by opening your word and praying that you would speak to us your truth. We thank you, Father, that you have not left us to our own ignorance, but you have given us your very words to teach us and to instruct us. And we pray, Father, that as we continue to look at what took place there at Calvary, as our Lord suffered and died, that we would have a greater understanding of these truths so that we might be moved to worship you more adequately. We pray, Father, that you would forgive us of our many sins, for we know that we sin daily and that we are in need of your grace daily. We pray, Father, that we would be faithful to live lives that are pleasing to you, that we would be faithful in telling others about your great salvation. We pray, Father, that you would be with our sister churches that are preaching the gospel throughout the world this day. We pray for many to come into the kingdom of God. We thank you for the wonderful truth that you will grow your church, that you will save your people from their sins, and that nothing we can do, Father, will hinder that, that you will accomplish your purpose in one way or another. But we pray that we would be faithful in obeying you to carry out the Great Commission. Pray for those that are unable to be with us this day. We know that there are those that watch by internet and we pray that they would join in with us and that you would be open to them and bless them your truth. And we pray, Father, that you would work in their lives as well as those that are here in this congregation. We pray for those that would be away, that you would watch over them as they worship elsewhere and that you would bring them back to us safely. We pray, Father, for those who would be sick, that you would place your healing hand upon their body and restore their health so that they might join us soon and worship with us. We pray for those, Father, that would not be here due to a lack of concern for their own spiritual condition and that you would bring conviction into their lives so that they may repent and return and not forsake assembling together of the brethren. Again, we ask that you bless our time together and that all that is said and done would be pleasing in your sight. And this we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. We continue in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. We will only read a very brief verse here in chapter 15, and then we will move over to Luke 23. Matthew, I mean Mark 15, verse 32. Speaking of the mocking and the ridiculing that our Lord and Savior is receiving, verse 32, it says, And let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, and we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him reviled him. And then turn over to Luke 23, beginning with verse 39. Luke 23, verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hanging blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, rebuked, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, and see you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. 
but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. As we have studied the crucifixion of Christ hanging there on the cross, we have seen that he was mocked by various people. As they passed by and lifted up their heads and spit upon him, wagged their head and said all kinds of evil to him. Who were these people? Well, we saw that they were the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders of that day, the temple guards, the Roman soldiers, and the Jewish people. But also we see that there were two criminals, one on each side of Christ, and as we read there in Mark's Gospel, they also reviled Him. The mocking and the ridicule. Last night as I watched the news, and saw there in Washington, D.C., the crowd standing before the White House, lifting up their signs and spewing out their wickedness, I could not help but think of this particular passage, the mocking and the ridicule that comes from people whose hearts are still evil, just as these two hearts were on this occasion. These two criminals were not freedom fighters, as some might declare, Nowhere in Scripture are these two individuals exalted or justified for their actions. They were hardened criminals who deserved to be put to death because of their crimes. And we see that Scripture confirms this. As they faced death, instead of fearing God, they mocked God in the flesh. But suddenly we see something happens. One of them immediately changes his tune. He no longer is spewing out evil. He's no longer spewing out the wickedness. We see that light shines in the darkness. The miracle of salvation occurs in the midst of all of this wickedness, all of this darkness. As the light shines forth in this man's heart and he's radically converted, revealing to us how merciful and gracious God is, teaching that sinners can come to Jesus Christ in the last hour of their life. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher there in London, said A great many persons. Whenever they hear of the conversion of the dying faith, remember he was saved in the very article of death. And they dwell upon the fact that alone he, was always, he has always been quoted as a case of the eleventh hour salvation. And so indeed he was. In this case, it is proven that as long as man can repent, he can obtain forgiveness. The cross of Christ avails even for a man hanging on Gitsby and drawing near to his last hour. He who is mighty to save was mighty even during his own death to pluck others from the grasp of the destroyer, though they were in the act of expiring. But that is not everything which is in the story 
It teaches us, and it always a pity to look exclusively upon this one point, and thus to miss everything else, perhaps missing that which is most important. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. Let us not miss that which is most important. Let us look beyond the fact that this criminal was converted in the last hour of his life because there are more important truths than simply the conversion at the last hour. We must remember that those who live without God usually die without God. One gnawing fact about the death of a loved one is that we sometimes really don't have the assurance that we would desire to have when we stand beside their coffin. We think, did that person really love Jesus? Did that person really give their life to Him? Had their life truly been changed? To not have that assurance gnaws at us. Years ago, a man appeared to be on his deathbed. I was told that this man prayed a prayer and was supposedly saved. But the man got better. He did not die. And he never gave any evidence of true conversion. And later, he died. Was he converted? That's what gnaws at us on situations like that. I wish I could tell you of examples of those that I know who rejected Jesus Christ all of their life and then they came to their deathbed and they trusted in Christ. But I can't. I don't know of any that I have spoken to on their deathbed who rejected Christ all of their life and then at the last moment they gave their life to Christ. Now, I'm not saying there aren't those because we have this example right here before us. And I know there are some, but yet what I'm trying to say is that they are few and in between. And if you're sitting here today and you think that you can wait until just before death to place your trust in Christ, I warn you, do not be deceived by Satan about this thinking that you have plenty of time, so you will wait just a little bit longer. Again, I affirm that there is such a reality as salvation in the eleventh hour, but there is a great danger for anyone to think that he can wait to the eleventh hour to trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. My chief concern is that no one downplays the importance of coming to Jesus Christ today. Do not delay. Don't focus on this one point of the 11th hour and neglect all the other truths that are found in this passage. Therefore, let us look at three truths that I want us to see in this particular passage to help us understand the amazing grace of God. 
First of all, this is a special situation as to the means of conversion. I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe you believe in the sovereignty of God. But especially in saving sinners from their sin. God has said, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. And this is so obvious in this particular passage. Both criminals, one on the right and one on the left of Jesus Christ, as Christ was dying and they were dying as well. And what transpires here? As they were both experiencing this excruciating pain, both guilty of heinous sin, both men had been sinfully mocking Jesus for those first three hours. Both were spewing out their blasphemy. Both needed forgiveness. One died in his sins with no sense of guilt, blind to reality that the Savior was hanging beside him. But the other criminal repented and trusted in Christ and went to be with Jesus forever. Why did one of these men remain in his sin? It wasn't because he was worse than the other. It wasn't because the other was smarter than him. So why was one saved and the other lost? It wasn't that one was nicer than the other man. Yet their eternal destiny was as different as heaven and hell. What a tremendous warning for all of us. Many hear these words and have real faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Others don't, both young and old. Some have sat in church for years hearing sermon after sermon after sermon, hearing the gospel, hearing the exhortation to repent and believe in Jesus Christ, yet they continue to sit and it falls upon deaf ears. The gospel call has been extended, mercy has been offered, and some have responded and trusted in Jesus Christ. While you haven't, you're like the other criminals. Blind to your desperate condition. Recently, a young man has come to me and he has shared that he has looked to Christ. And he was saved. He came to see that Jesus Christ died for his sins. That Jesus Christ has forgiven him. And therefore, he has experienced salvation. There's a great separation between these two on the cross. One received mercy, the other one didn't. One looked to Christ as Savior, the other one didn't. One was forgiven of his sins, the other one wasn't. One went to heaven, the other one didn't. One is with Jesus now in eternal blitz, and the other one is in hell under torment. 
There's always opposites to be found. Cain and Abel. Jacob and Esau. Isaac and Ishmael. Moses and Pharaoh. Samuel and Phinehas. David and Saul. Absalom and Samuel or Solomon, Peter and Judas, Timothy and Demas. There have been many Christian homes who have raised their children having two siblings, both experiencing the same parental love and care hearing the Word of God day in and day out, sitting under the preaching of the Gospel every single week. But one follows Jesus Christ and the other rejects Him. A.W. Criswell, the great preacher for over 50 years at First Baptist Church, Dallas, shared that when he was a boy, He was raised in a Christian home and just down the street, his neighbor and friend was also raised in a Christian home just like him. He had godly parents and was carried to church with him every Sunday. But he said, I became a preacher, was saved and then became a preacher. But this other one ended up in prison on two different occasions. And on the second occasion when he was in prison, another prison person took a baseball bat and beat his brains in. And he left this world without Christ. He said, why was it? Why did God have mercy upon me and not my friend down the street? I'd encourage you to listen to that wonderful sermon. You can pull it up by... Just simply typing in A.W. Criswell and the Bible kind of salvation, which is a sermon on election, a wonderful sermon, a wonderful way to spend your time this afternoon in listening to the gospel. But why? Why? Well, I can't explain it. All I can say is Jesus Christ said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hid these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for it seems right, good in your sight. And that's all we can say. That it seems good, it seems right in God's sight. How is it that two men hear the same sermon and one is convicted of his sins and repents and looks to Jesus Christ while the other leaves as he enters more concerned about sports, more concerned about the things of this world, about cars and about sex than his ever-dying soul? Scripture teaches that salvation is all of grace But don't abuse the mercy of God. Don't abuse the common grace that God gives you and allowing you to continue to come to church, allowing you to be under the preaching of the Word of God, to hear the Word of God. 
Don't take for granted that God would continue to show you common grace and mercy. God has given you parents that pray for you and bring you to church and instruct you in the things of God. Every person has an obligation to repent, to trust in Christ. Scripture commands you to do so. For God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. The gospel is sincerely offering Jesus Christ to you as Lord and Savior. He is able to save the worst of sinners as seen in this particular passage. Confess your sins like the criminal did and look to Christ alone. Second, especially in his faith, this criminal gave indication that his life was truly transformed by Christ. I mean, many make excuses why they don't come to church and why they don't come to Christ. They say, I don't go to that church because there's so many hypocrites in that church. It's full of hypocrites. Well, you can say, well, it's one less hypocrite since you're not coming. Or you can say to them, well, that's a ridiculous statement which you can shoot down quickly and you can say, well, evidently you don't go to the doctor either. And they say, oh yeah, I go to the doctor. Well, you know there are doctors that are false doctors and therefore you shouldn't go to any doctor since there are doctors that are not true doctors. I mean, there's many arguments that you can give to shoot down their statement that they make. But the point that I want to make is that there are genuine Christians and you should be living like one day in and day out. Don't allow anyone to use you as an excuse for not coming to church or for not coming to Christ. It isn't enough to talk the talk as we have heard. We must walk the walk. And of course, no Christian is perfect. We all are sinners. We sin daily. We all need the grace of God day in and day out. And we need to tell our fellow man like that. We need to tell him, look, in and on myself, I am not perfect. I'm a sinner. It's the perfection of Christ. Christ's righteousness covers me. I'm not accepted in my righteousness, for my righteousness is filthy rags. I look to Christ daily. He cleanses me of my sin so that I might be presented to the Heavenly Father. As Isaiah said, these people worship God with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. May that not be so. Christ repeated that very passage in Matthew 15, 8. We must not simply worship God with our lips, but our hearts must be intact with God. It must be changed so that we worship Him in true worship. Here is a man who knew he was going to die at any moment. You would think that any such person would pray to God for God to save him, wouldn't you? I mean, think of the many soldiers on the battlefield in that foxhole when they thought that they were going to die. What do they do? Most of them cry out to God, Save me! But of course, many foxhole salvations aren't true salvations. I wish all of them were, but we know that not all of them are. Often when one cries out, as he faced death, 
He's only doing it because he's fearful of death. Not that he wants Christ as his Lord and Savior. Even those that cry out often show that they really and truly aren't crying out to God. I can remember years ago, I think it was my senior year, or maybe even after my senior year in high school, a, a number of us were going down to Gulf Shores, Alabama. And, and years ago, 98 was called Bloody 98 because it was not four-laned. So many people were killed on that highway. And as we were going down one hill, I took out to pass this 18-wheeler, and he decided he was going to pick up speed as I was trying to pass him. And as I got closer and closer to him, I looked up ahead, and there was a car coming toward us. I did not see because of the tree hanging over, and that car came to a dead stop. And I cut in front of it and barely got back over. I lost my tail end. I thought we were going. I thought we were going to roll. And one of the guys in the back seat said some things that he ought not to have said because he thought we were going to die. And later I asked him, I said, I wonder if we would have been killed. Your last words were those words. He cried out, but he didn't cry out to God. And that's how a lot of people are. What reveals to us that this criminal in crying out to Christ, had special saving faith. What shows us that he wasn't merely giving lip service, but his heart was truly renewed and changed. What shows us that? Well, first of all, we see that he was concerned not only for himself, but he was concerned about his companion the other one on the other side of Jesus. And he cries out to his friend there, Do you fear God? Not fear God. Do you not even fear God? I think he took every bit of the energy that he had, as much energy that a man could have as he's hanging on the cross dying, and, and cried out to his friend this, these words. There in verse 40. He heard what his cohort had been saying. Of course, he had been saying the same things earlier, and it bothered him. Now, beforehand, it had not bothered him. He had joined in. He had been saying the same things. But in one instance, he went from darkness into light. His eyes were open to the truth. His eyes were open to who Jesus Christ was. And now, he reverences God. Seeing God's holiness, realizing that he deserved death because of his sins. He realized that they had committed great sins. Notice what he says there in verse 40. Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. So he understood that. That he was righteously being put to death because of the kind of man that he had been. And he warns his friend, what more could a man do to him? They couldn't do any more to him. He was about to die. But beyond the judgment of men, there was the judgment of God on his throne. And he understands that. If only he could have seen this earlier, 
in his life, he would not have walked in the path of the ungodly or stood in the way of sinners or sat in the seat of scornful. He had sold to the world the flesh and the devil and he was reaping destruction. That's what scripture teaches us. You sow to the world, to flesh and the devil, you reap destruction. Hear me, young people. Hear me, children. If you disobey your parents and you go your own path, you rebel against the truth, you will reap destruction. That's what the Word of God teaches us. But now we see this man's life is radically changed. Sin had a bound, but grace abounds much more. Hallelujah. And he comes to see that. He understands that he was a filthy sinner. He understands that he deserved an eternal hell. But he sees the grace of God that is able to cover all of his sin, multitudes of sin, and that he can have life, everlasting life. So he's a new creature. And he's concerned. He's concerned about his companion and he shouts to him, Fear God! Look to Christ. Be saved. Second, he acknowledges his own sin. He he took responsible for it. He didn't blame others. He didn't blame others and said, you led me in the path. He He didn't turn to his fellow man. He said, if I wouldn't have followed your path, I would be on this cross. He didn't begin to accuse others. No, as I pointed out, he said, we indeed are punished justly. There's no cover-up. He opens up and he confesses his sin. Which is, of course, a mark of grace. When a person bows his head and acknowledges his sin before God. Remember the parable that Jesus told about the Pharisee And the tax collector, the publican, one stood tall and boldly, that Pharisee, and he boasted about how righteous he was and how good he was and how he tithed and how he did all of these things that he thought pleased God. He didn't see that it was all filth and and wickedness before God. He boasted in those things. And then that publican would not even lift his head, but he prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus tells us which one, or asked the question, which one went home Justified. Well, we know the answer. Only the one that cried out and said, Be merciful to me, a sinner. The Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, not the righteous, not those that think they are righteous. But He came to save those who confess their sins and repent and look to Christ. The gospel can only help those who acknowledge their sin. If a person will not acknowledge their sin, they cannot be saved. This man acknowledged his sin and therefore was converted. Thirdly, he declares 
the impeccability of Christ. Now, children, do you know what that word is? Impeccability. Well, that word impeccability means blamelessness of Christ. His righteousness. No one could bring a blame against Him. Why? Because He never sinned. You know that from the catechisms. Christ was perfect. And He declares that. The criminal's eyes are open to where he's able to see the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, this man, this man has done what? Nothing wrong. Now, Pilate had said the same thing. What's the difference? Well, Pilate did not really understand. This man does. If Pilate really would have understood, he would have released Jesus. This man really understands the impeccability of Christ. He understands that he has done nothing wrong because he is God. He is the Son of God. And he's saying, look, we're, we're a pair of criminals. We're sinners, but not Jesus. He has no business being up on this cross. We should be here because we desperately deserve what we have received. But yet Jesus is holy. He's harmless. He's undefiled. He's separated from sinners. Higher than the heavens. A lamb without spot. A lamb without blemish. That's who we are being crucified with. Jesus always pointed out that there were only two groups of people. Sheep. Goats, saved, lost, righteous, wicked. Those with all, those without all. And I could go on and on of the difference he makes throughout the scripture. Everyone in this room, now listen to me. I want everyone to listen to me. I want your attention. Every person in this room is in one or the other category. You're either lost or you're saved. You're either righteous in Christ or you are wicked. You either have the oil of the Spirit or not. You're in one or the other group. There's no in-between. Make sure that you understand that. Do not allow Satan to deceive you and let you think that you are okay. No. If you're without Christ, you are not Okay, you are under the wrath of God. Now fourthly, he believed that Jesus had the power to save him. It says, and then he said, Jesus, Lord, remember me. He cried out to the only one that could help him. Jesus. What's the Old Testament name, children? Joshua. What does Joshua mean? Salvation. Savior. Salvation of the Lord. He knew that as a Jew. He had been taught that all his life as a Jew. And here he realizes that he could not save himself. That he had to look to the one that was hanging there beside him. Therefore, he cries out, Jesus, Lord, Savior, Adonai, Savior, Yahweh, 
He was aware that he could not live without the mercy and grace of God. So he cries out, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He understood that there was life after death and that there were only two places he could spend either heaven or hell, either with Christ or without Christ. So he cries out, remember me, realizing that Christ was full of mercy and grace. Now we need to remember the condition that Christ was in. We've looked at it for a number of weeks. As he's hanging there on the cross, he's hanging there as a man who has been tortured and beaten and is beyond recognition. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, that he was not even desirable to look upon. He was weak from all that he had been through. But yet, we see that he's not thinking of himself. He's not thinking of his own suffering pain, but he's willing to think of others. We see that in the Gospel of Mark. We see that standing around the cross was his mother Mary and other women and Peter. They were there watching as he was suffering and dying. And Jesus takes enough time to show his concern for his own mother and tells Peter to take her in, to take care of her, to watch over her. But not only does he have time for his own family and friends, we see that he has time for this man. Now, of course, this man didn't understand everything as far as the Bible was concerned. The Old Testament, of course, is all that they had. He didn't understand everything about the Old Testament. He didn't understand everything about salvation. But he understood the basic truth. He understood about Joshua. He understood the name Savior. He understood that the Messiah would save His people from their sins. So therefore, he looks to Jesus and understands that Jesus has a kingdom. And he wants to be a part of that kingdom. So he prays to Jesus. He doesn't pray to a priest. He doesn't pray to an angel or a preacher or anyone else. But he prays to the only one that could help him. As a side note there, remember when John in Revelation prays to the angel? And the angel tells John to worship God only. Now that's a passage we can use to those who hold to pray to angels. Say, well look, the angel theirself said to John to pray to God only, not to angels. Side note. Well, we see here that he humbly prays and God's grace begins to manifest itself in his life. Listen to what J.C. Ryle said. Let us beware of a repentance without evidence. Thousands, it may be feared, or every year going out of this world with a lie in their right hand. They fancy they will be saved because the faith was saved in the last hour. 
They forget that if they would be saved as he was, they must repent as he repented. Our third point, we see the amazing power and willingness of Jesus Christ to remember this lost sinner. As he says there in verse 43, Surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Remember the sign that was placed over the cross of Jesus' head? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now the other criminal had said, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Now what was he talking about? He was saying, deliver me from this cross. He wasn't saying, save me spiritually, carry me to heaven like the other feet did. No, he was just wanting to be relieved from the pain and agony and death as he was facing it there on the cross. They were words of mockery. He didn't look to Jesus Christ as Savior. But these words sunk into the heart of this criminal. Being a Jew and having heard certain truths about the Messiah, he comes to see, because his eyes are open, that Christ is the Messiah. Though Jesus had suffered greatly, he shows this concern for him. And therefore, even though Christ Himself only has a short time left. He shows His great concern for this sinner just as He had showed His great concern for His mother and His other followers that were there at the cross. But the greatest concern was shown to this criminal. This one who had spewed out evil after evil, after evil upon Jesus, who had mocked Him for hours, and now He lovingly responds to Him. Now just think about that. You know, we hear that and we don't really let it sink in. Think about someone day after day after day treating you sinfully. I mean, always saying wicked things to you and doing wicked things to you all of their life. And then when you're on your deathbed, and I mean when they're on their deathbed and you walk in the room, they continue to say wicked things to you. Now what would you do? Most of, them would not, most of us would not even walk into their room because all these years they've been saying wicked things to us and treating us, and they'll say, well, you're getting what you deserve. Isn't that right? Isn't that what we would say and think? But just say you go into that room, and while they're on their deathbed, they continue to spew wickedness out to you. Then you would definitely go to the door, right? Jesus died. And then right before their last few moments, they say to you, have mercy. Have mercy and grace upon me. What would you do? We're sinful human beings. I know what most of us would probably think. 
but not our perfect Lord and Savior. No, our perfect Lord and Savior does what? He has mercy. He has grace. He tells us to love our enemies as ourselves. As I've said many times, folks, that's one of the most difficult things that we are called upon to do. And we cannot do it in the flesh. The only way that we can do it is by the Spirit of God. But yet Jesus, as Peter tells us, has set before us the example. He is the example that we are to follow. And here we have Jesus on the verge of death and he shows this great compassion and mercy and grace to this wicked one. The Bible says, He is able to save to the utmost those who come to God through him for he ever lives to make intercession for us. Consider that Jesus was at his weakest point under such pressure to be sorry for himself. To be drawn to himself. Unheeding of any in need around him. He who, was known, who had known no sin was knowing the awfulness of being made sin. He had not hit that point to where he's going to experience the full impact. We're going to be looking at that in future sermons. He had not hit that point, but he knows that it's coming. Just as he knew in the garden, and when he realized it in the garden and came to a greater understanding of it, he began to sweat drops of blood. And now as he's approaching that point, this man cries out to him. Think again of the utter unworthiness of this man. Not only was his past a total wreck, but there was no future potential in the life of this man. Nothing for him to do as far as serving God. He was going to die in a few moments. The world would look upon him and say, he's getting exactly what he deserves. He's a nobody. He, being at the point of death, What did he have to offer to God? This man wasn't going to do any of the Lord's work for the rest of his life. He wasn't going to be a preacher. He wasn't going to be a missionary. He wasn't going to be a deacon. He wasn't going to be a servant in God's house. He wasn't going to have a Christian business and be able to tithe lots of money and support missionaries. He was going to die. He wasn't coming down off of that cross. He had nothing to offer God. But yet, He receives mercy and grace. This is the clearest possible 
passage to reveal to us that salvation is all of grace. Not of works. Did you hear what I said? He could do nothing. Nothing he could do to earn salvation. He was never baptized. He never received communion. He never lifted one finger in serving the Lord. Yet Jesus gives him this glorious promise. As surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The way of salvation is the same for everyone. Look to Jesus. Repent and trust in Him alone. There's no doubt that people can be saved just before they die. But that is not the norm. Jeff Thomas told this story of a farmer on Lewis Island in Herbides. And this farmer owned a large amount of land, but it was surrounded by cliffs. So his land was up high, and you had all the cliffs going down to the ocean around him. And one day as he was riding around the edge of his land, he was unaware that erosion had taken away part of his land. And suddenly it gave way and the horse and the buggy and he fell through the air toward the rocks below. And he, as he was falling, it seemed as if he remembered... And I've heard this before when you are facing death and almost about to die, all of this just ushers into your mind. I can remember one time when I thought I was drowning. I went under a bridge. We were foolishly playing in a, a big creek and it had been a rainstorm and going down and then the boat went down and I went under the bridge. I can remember things flashing into my mind. I thank the Lord that He spared my life. But this man, as he was hurling through the air, remembered what he had been taught in church and heard in church, all that his parents had taught him, all that the Sunday school teacher had taught him, the youth leader and his friends. And it all came rushing into his mind while he was falling through the air. And he cried out to God to save him. And he said, God instantly gave me divine assurance that he had heard my prayer. And he crashed onto a huge pile of seaweed and sand that cushioned his fall. And he not only escaped death, but he escaped any injury. And he lived for many more years loving the gospel he had heard and believed, confessing it to others. His life was radically changed. He was a disciple of Christ and he remained faithful to the end of his life. 
And when he would tell others of his experience, he would say to them and make this point. If I had hit the rocks below and died, all of the church-going friends would have said, sadly, poor Jock. He heard the gospel often, but he resisted it. And then he died so suddenly, there's no hope for him. They wouldn't have known that he cried out to God in that last moment. They wouldn't have known that God had mercy and grace upon him. They wouldn't have known that. And his point was, don't wait till death to seek Christ. You may be like this guy that rode in the car with me when you're faced with death that God's not on your mind. Foolishness is on your mind. Also, those who are truly saved desire to tell others what Christ has done for them. They want to tell them how they experienced the grace of God. I remember a man in my first full-time pastorate. He was a hardened, oil-filled worker. I mean, I remember another individual telling me, he said, I saw him fight one time. Both of them were beating each other to the pulp. He would be home and the preacher would walk in the front door and he'd walk out the back door. But God, in his older age, changed him. Gave him a new heart. One of the first men I went to visit after I went to that church. And in tears in his eyes, said, oh, Brother Thomas, I wish I would have come to the Lord earlier. I've led my children astray. I haven't been the father or the husband that I needed to be. Oh, I regret waiting so long to come to Christ. Let me close by saying, if Jesus Christ had time on Golgotha to consider this hardened criminal, how much more time does he have to think of you? Don't put off coming to the one whose arms are open, stretched out wide to receive any sinner that comes him cry out to him and say remember me don't continue to reject him who is able to save you and Christian as Paul says examine yourself to make sure you're in the faith take the test 
Have you looked to Christ and Christ alone? Do you have a real desire to live for Him day in and day out? Do you have a desire to tell others what He has done for you? Do you care for the lost? Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you have demonstrated your mercy and grace in such a wonderful way in this passage by showing us that you are able to even save the worst of sinners in the eleventh hour. But Father, I pray that none of us here this morning would wait till that hour. But that they would say that today is the day of salvation. That today is the day that they need to look to Christ and be saved. And I pray for we who are Christians that we would be faithful just like this thief was there on the cross to speak the truth in love to those that we come in contact with, to call them to repentance and live a godly life before them, whether it be in our home or at work or at play. May we be faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.